0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Mike Munger from Duke University, where he is a professor of political science with secondary appointments in economics and public policy. Professor Munger trained as an economist at Washington University in St. Louis and has published prolifically across disciplines in the areas of political economy and public choice. Today, we're gonna talk about his latest book, The Sharing Economy, Its Pitfalls and Promises. This book updates and builds on ideas also presented in his earlier book, Tomorrow 3.0, published with Cambridge University Press, but has the additional virtue that it is uh, more recent, updated, and is available for free online from the Institute of Economic Affairs. Mike, welcome. It's great to be on the show. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for coming on. Um, so why don't we just uh, start out with the basics? Um, probably everyone's heard this uh, this uh, phrase by now, but, but tell us what is the sharing economy?
1: Well, it was good of you to mention the two books because my thinking evolved quite a lot between the writing of the two books. So in, in 2018, Uh, I I published Tomorrow 3.0, and it was mostly about the sharing economy. And the simple phrase that I tried to make clear in that book was the commodification of excess capacity, the commodification of excess capacity. The point being, we all own and store a bunch of stuff we don't use very much. And the reason we don't share it is that the costs of doing that are too high. So I argued that there were three costs of sharing things. The argument being we have enough stuff if we just were better at using the excess capacity that we have, uh, we wouldn't need quite so much stuff. We wouldn't need to pay to store it. As it stands, we pay for everything twice. First, I pay for my car, and then I pay to park it in a garage or my parking space at work or some underground parking lot in an expensive city. So we, we spend an enormous amount to store stuff that we're not using. If we could share it, then we wouldn't need to pay to store it, and we could actually have a revenue source where someone else would basically borrow it, and we call that renting. So the three kinds of transactions cost I emphasized in that book were triangulation, we have to be able to find each other, transfer. I have to deliver the good or let you use the service. We have to pay for it and trust. That is, I'm sure you'll return it and that you'll pay me and you're sure that the thing that I provide is actually what we agreed on. Well, in the intervening four years, I realized that the sharing economy and rental and sharing might not be the primary way to think about this because I was thinking too small. So the the emphasis on the sharing economy in the second book has more to do with platforms. And platforms are a, it could be a physical place, like a mall. It could be a virtual thing on paper, like the Sears catalog, or it could be a virtual thing online, like Amazon. But what's being provided by a mall a Sears catalog or Amazon is a, just a place for buyers and sellers independently to find each other. And you might ask buyers and sellers of what? Well, of anything. It could be a good, a service. It could be art. It could be music. It could be all the all the things that some people have and that other people want, either to use or to have. So the I think the having thought about it now for nearly 10 years, I think the essential concept here is the platform, which is a place, and I'm making air quotes, which makes for a great podcast, I realize, is a place where the three kinds of transactions cost, triangulation, transfer, and trust, are solved to an extent that people can find each other and then make their own, perhaps unexpected use of that platform. Mm -hmm. And so...
0: um... So how did, you, how did you get into this topic in the first place? How did you become interested?
1: When I first tried to use Uber, it seemed strange. When I first thought of using Airbnb, it seemed impossible. And I think that old people, it, it's probably difficult for young people to, to recognize what a switch this was for old people. Uh, Airbnb in particular, I'm going to use your apartment and you have the keys. That seems really creepy. Well, but we can solve the problems of triangulation, transfer, and trust. And once you're used to that, it no longer seems so creepy to you. A lot of young people are perfectly happy with the idea of renting an apartment through Airbnb. Uh, They they may want to take some kinds of precautions. But once you, well, let me take, take one step back. My dissertation advisor was Douglas North who worked a lot, won the Nobel Prize in 1993, Nobel Prize in economics. And the big concept that he used to analyze things was transaction costs. And I had been interested in the problem of transaction costs, but it became clear to me pretty quickly that we should think of transactions cost as friction in a system. And once you think of it as friction in a system, anything you can do that gets rid of friction is going to increase the efficiency of the engine And this engine is people being able to find each other and engage in mutually beneficial activities. And so the cool thing about a transaction cost approach is that many things that we have not thought of as commodities become commodities. So for example, I have, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I only have about a one acre lot. I have a riding lawnmower and so does my neighbor. He also has a one acre lot. So each of us has a $3,000 riding lawnmower that we use for 40 minutes once a week. Peter, it's an outrage. Why don't we have some way of sharing that? Well, in fact, probably within five years, we will have figured out some way to have an even better lawnmower that costs $4,000 but can be shared by five people and all you have to do is coordinate it and then you have a little micro system. I don't have to go to Home Depot or some large app uh, large platform to solve this problem. we can have micro platforms. Once you start to think in terms of apps that can reduce transactions cost locally, then our ability to share the stuff that we now pay a lot to store my closets are full of stuff. I've got so much kitchen equipment. So the, a, a lot of people who live in cities probably spend a quarter of their space or more, and they don't have much. You live in New York, you live in San Francisco, you don't have much space. You're wasting a quarter of that on storing stuff. Suppose that you could reliably and quickly rent better stuff and then only keep it for as long as you need it. It's better for everyone.
0: Right, I think you know it's an interesting theme of your book um, that that I like. Well, I, I actually you don't highlight it quite as much as as maybe I would. But uh, you know, being in San Francisco where uh, where um, the ideology is very aggressively progressive um, in in every possible way, you know that this is an interesting case where it's you know sometimes it seems like it's kind of market versus the environment, but here there's really a very clear case where your own personal incentive to like lower your costs and, you know, not, not spend money on storing stuff or whatever, or, or having a bigger house, um, uh, and is, is aligned with kind of the environmental incentives, right? Rather than building, you know, five riding loan borrowers and all the, you know, all the resources that takes, let's just, let's just build one of them, um, which, which is much, uh, you know, much less of a, of an impact on the world.
1: The, 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 I really think that the insight that I have come to, and probably you're right, that I, I sort of came, I came to it after I had worked on writing the books, is we we not only have enough stuff, we have too much stuff. We could do a lot more with less, and the way to do that is to think about sharing. The problem with using trust to share in the absence of having some kind of platform is I don't know enough people. It's hard to negotiate. It's hard to know how we could organize it. So if it's a combination of sharing and using the price mechanism. And I think a fair number of people who have progressive views who the politically otherwise are pretty progressive, I have no objection to the price system, provided that you don't get all the other consumerism where people are building oversized houses, they're using excessively wasteful cars, if we could somehow align, as you just said, the incentives of how we want to live and to be able to use market systems to advance that, I probably should emphasize that more in the book because I certainly believe, I believe that that is one of the key benefits. We have too much stuff. If we just did a better job at sharing it, then poor people could have access to better stuff and I would pay less to be storing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah so now let's talk about um,
0: how how this actually works out it's actually it's great just to um, you mentioned you know that you're you're trained by Doug North I'm sort of a, I guess we're we're uh, academic I don't know uh, cousins or something because I studied with Barry Weingast at um, uh, at Stanford a few years after you worked with him and of course uh, it's closely linked to, to Doug North but um, I teach a class now on institutions, markets, and platforms where I assign your, your, I assigned Doug North in the first week to sort of give them a sense of like how this kind of lowering of transaction costs and and smoothing of, of mutually beneficial exchange was uh, crucial to the development of Europe. And then kind of, you know, guide them through that to up towards the present and thinking about um, companies like like Uber and so forth. Um, so why don't you tell, tell us more about like, um, I think a lot of people don't think about it this way. And I think it's a really important insight to the importance of trust in um, and the, and the role of platform businesses in, in creating trust. Like, tell, tell us more about like, how do they do that? And why
1: is that a, why is that a new thing? and Why is it necessary? Trust solving the problem of trust has always been necessary. Uh, The difficulty that we have often had is, well, Doug North's definition of a market is a set of institutions reducing the transaction cost of impersonal exchange, of impersonal exchange. So if I go to the same butcher every week, uh, then it's repeat business. He'll the the butcher will take care of me, not give me a rotten piece of meat because he knows that I'll be back next week. So that's not really a pure market. A pure market is one where institutions have solved this problem to the point that I have recourse to other mechanisms of making sure that I don't get bad meat. Now, one way that we do that is through regulation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the Food Food and Drug Administration, there's a variety of kinds of of regulation, pilot licensing, so that I can be pretty sure that the pilot knows how to fly an airplane before I get on, you know, a commercial jet flight. So those are some ways of solving the problem of trust. But if we have a way of solving the problem of trust in a more decentralized and granular way without government regulation. Because in some cases, these things are subjective. It's not something that I can look at objectively like a drug and say it's safe or it's not safe. And actually, young people are already used to doing this in ways that old people are not. Young people, if they want to find a restaurant that's good, they don't look at advertisements. They look at Yelp. Which mm-hmm. means that there's a bunch of reviews from a bunch from other people th- that they don't know. There's hundreds of reviews from people that they don't know and have never met. But precisely because they're different, statistically independent, registering of an opinion, if the, the average review of an, of a restaurant on on Yelp is pretty high, I can trust that it's probably real. And so the young people, I think, they don't think this way. You're right. They don't think about it in terms of trust. And yet at the same time, they'll always be the first to look at these reviews. Well, we have these kinds of decentralized reviews. We could regulate it like we do taxi cabs. But I've had some terrible experience in New York and in San Francisco with taxi drivers that were were aggressive. They were shouting. um, If that happens in an Uber, then I can write a bad review. And if if somebody gets too many bad reviews, they're no longer on, they they no longer get to use the app. Now it's not perfect. I'm not claiming that the trust system on Uber is perfect, but it's an alternative way to having top-down government regulation that's more decentralized and is more responsive to the opinions of individuals. So if I want to rent out my apartment on Airbnb, before I have many reviews, people are gonna say, I am not sure I wanna go to that place. But once I have a number of reviews, I have created something that economists call a depreciable capital asset. So my reputation is a depreciable capital asset. I have 20, 30 good reviews on Airbnb. If I'm not careful, and even one bad review can substantially reduce people's willingness to stay at the apartment that I'm trying to rent on Airbnb. So I have an incentive to try to keep that. Now, the incentive is not perfect. I'm not claiming it's ideal, but it's a very low-cost, decentralized way of solving this problem of trust. And young people just always look for reviews first. So they're actually used to thinking about this problem. I think you're right, though. They may not have thought about it in terms of this general solution to the problem of transactions cost.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that probably many people who you know might not think of themselves as anti-regulation, but if then you say, well, you know, would you rather go to the restaurant that's got the stamp of approval from the, I don't know, government restaurant bureau, which you know sounds silly because we don't, we don't evaluate the actual like quality of the food. We just evaluate, you know, sanitation. But like, if they said, you know, do you want some place with a slightly better sanitation, re- uh, you know, uh, rating or someplace that has, you know, a thousand positive reviews, they probably say, oh, well, you know, the reviews, who cares about the, The rating, like as long as they're not like poisoning the food, then I want to go to the place that's popular.
1: Well, you're making an important point. So let me pick up on it for a minute. There's two dimensions. One is safety and the other is efficacy or goodness. So when it comes to drugs, I can't tell if the drug really works. And I also can't tell if it has side effects. So the Food and Drug Administration is in charge both of effectiveness and side effects. When it comes to food, I can tell whether the food tastes good or not, but I can't go back and look at the kitchen and see if they're up to snuff for, for health standards. So the, for restaurants, we only have one kind of inspection. We don't have a federal bureau of burritos that comes and stand away from that cilantro, sir. It's well, it's wilted. I can't let you have that. That'll take care of itself. People will be able to look at restaurants and judge the quality, the taste, the subjective taste of the food itself. What they can't do is judge health. And then when it comes to movies, I ask people, my students sometimes, would you rather have a federal bureau uh, judging the quality of movies? And they'd say, well, no, then in that case everything would just be political. And of course, that's right. So we don't judge either the quality or the side effects of movies. We just use Rotten Tomatoes or some other service that gives us the aggregated opinions of many other independent people. So the result of that is we're basically using the trust, the the opinions of many other people to generate statistically, economically, an estimator. And so it's interesting on the, the... The game show, who wants to be a millionaire, the best of the lifelines was always ask the audience. And remember, this audience is people who stood in line three hours to watch a show they could have watched on television. So these are not society's winners. But we're asking this group of 100 people, and usually, whatever the plurality was, there's four choices, A, B, C, and D, we ask the audience, they got it right more than any of the other lifelines. So there is some wisdom in crowds. And this kind of uh, appealing to trust in a setting where the costs of being wrong are not too great, so it's not like cancer drugs, but it's an apartment. And it turns out there were roaches; it wasn't clean. I read that review and I say I'm not going back there.
0: Right, and I guess that another issue is you know there's yeah that like you said a lot of the things are sort of more nuanced evaluations of quality where you know maybe if I you know technically if i promise you my apartment is you know new and modern and located in a vibrant downtown district next to all the sites and then it turns out that it's gross and unpleasant and you know you know lots of subtle things are just like not up to snuff it's probably not you know it's not something where i could make the effort to sue you over it or you know in in, you know bring the government in and for and you know sue you for a contract violation like technically you know, maybe you could, but it would never be worth it. But but it's certainly easy enough to, to leave a bad review, and that can that can give you a as uh, a better judgment of whether really the expectations were met and the the sort of service was was delivered the way it was supposed to.
1: But notice the public goods aspect of this. Normally in markets, the remedy is if I don't like something, I won't use it again. So if I didn't like this apartment, I won't use it again. But by writing a review, I can share that information with thousands and maybe tens of thousands of other people at a very low cost. And because I'm slightly outraged, but the fact that the, the they did not keep their promises. This place was not as good as as promised. It takes me five minutes, maybe, to write the review, and yet it benefits thousands of other people. So the that we're no longer restricted to the remedy of I'm not going to use it anymore. I can actually influence the likelihood that many other people will w- not use it at all and the anticipation of that disciplines this is one of the things about economics that i think a lot of people don't understand the anticipation of future consequences is likely to create an expectation and it's going to change the way that i act because of this threat of future sanctions from getting bad reviews
0: right so yeah if you 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 care about the reputation of your whatever it is your your car service, you know, your driver, your, uh, your Airbnb. And so, yeah, you don't want to get, you don't get, you don't want to get tanked in their reviews um, and then lose all that business you could have in the future. Cause no one's going to go to the guy with, with lots of bad reviews, which is a little bit scary though sometimes. Cause a lot of these reviews are um, it's like actually, you know, not unlike student evaluations with both, both you and I may face where like the one disgruntled person who decides to give you a one star because the cilantro was wilted or whatever it is that was, you know, or at least it looked wilted to them. Uh, can have a really outsized impact.
1: Right. And I think that's the thing most people look at is not the one or two best reviews, not the one or two worst reviews, but the overall average. And then maybe they look at the bad reviews to see what you know what is the worst that can happen. But if, if overall, if you got 4.6, 4.8 out of 5, and a couple of people had a bad experience, it's probably pretty good. I, I think pre- people are pretty good at parsing that. Uh, recognizing that nobody's perfect.
0: Yeah, I think actually we're all probably getting better and better at that from experience and sort of exactly that process you said, like, you you know, for myself, I used to just look at, you know, the average rating and say, okay, what's that? But, but yeah, that process of like, okay, who is the disgruntled person and what are they upset about? You know, if I'm looking at an Amazon thing, are they upset because, you know, this was actually, you know you know, uh, clothes for a doll instead of clothes for a human? Or are they upset because like, oh, it was two days late later than I thought it would be, which is much less of a, of a, you know, may not be my main
1: concern. Yeah, Right. Or the packaging was broken by UPS. i fairly often, when I look at, uh, Amazon reviews, it's about something else. It's a bad review, but it's about something else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, thing, you know,
0: the whole, the whole motive of people putting out reviews, I think is, uh. And interesting I mean it's it's maybe obvious to normal people but like in our economic framework we often think about it, it's going to be hard to get someone to produce public goods that you know have a small cost for them and a great benefit for everyone else um, but here it's kind of the flip is that actually people just for whatever reason we just love telling people other people what we think um, and possibly even more so if it's an opportunity to praise someone we think is good or to get vengeance on someone we think is bad so it's almost like our individual benefit, just that little thrill of evaluating someone and having other people listen to our evaluations um, is actually actually creates this great social benefit.
1: It actually goes back, I think, to Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiment. So the book he published in 1759, he said, we have an interest in the welfare of others. Now, it's not big, but it doesn't have to be. And that's what, you know, circling back to platforms, it doesn't have to be big because it is so inexpensive for me just to spend two or three minutes writing a review. Now, you could say that these reviews are censored in just the way that you mentioned. The people who had a eh- Experience, they they probably don't do reviews. But the people who really liked it and who really didn't like it are probably going to write reviews. And the result is you get to find out which of those is which of those groups is relatively more numerous. And there is information in that. So we we have a desire to share this information if we can do it cheaply. We're not going to go buy a billboard, but since I can just pull out my phone and in three minutes write a quick review. If it was great or if it was terrible, then we create. Create a public good of re- greatly increased trust and a reduction in the asymmetric information that usually blocks mutually beneficial transactions. You know, I see a restaurant, it looks okay. They have every reason to make it look okay. I want to know more about it. With Yelp, I can, I can get more information very quickly because that platform solves the problems of triangulation transfer and trust.
0: Okay, so we've been talking about you know all the all the great things about this and ways in which it can uh, you know replace things that would be hard to regulate or maybe even be better than regulation. But um, you know, a- as you know, there's a lot of people who are concerned um, or would make the argument that actually uh, a lot of what Uber and Airbnb and other platform businesses are doing is almost the opposite. They're undercutting regulations that were put in place for good reasons, and they're kind of redefining. You know they're saying we're not a hotel, we're just a platform. We're not a taxi service, we're just a platform. And by doing that, um, exploiting people or uh, causing kind of net harm. Um, so, so tell
1: me, tell me what you think about those concerns. Well, California in particular has had some trouble uh, recently with Uber. AB five was a very contentious vote on whether Uber drivers would be treated as contractors or employees. Uh, And I can see, I think that's a short run problem, but it is a legitimate concern. Here's the way I would put it. Well, Mark Andreessen, uh, the now venture capitalist of Andreessen Horowitz famously in 2011 wrote a, op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, and the title of it was Software Eats the World. And you can see that happening all around us. So if you go into a McDonald's or a fast food restaurant, you are not likely to be going to talk to a human being. You're going to punch your order into a kiosk. And the reason is that we used to go in and I'd look up at a board and I would say some words that appeared on the board and then the person behind the counter would press the corresponding keys on the cash register. So I say Big Mac and he or she looks for Big Mac and presses that key. Just turn the cash register around. I can do that. I can press those buttons. So I press those buttons on a kiosk. And the result is that the person who used to work in McDonald's has lost his or her job. Now you can say that wasn't a very good job to begin with, but the, the software taking the place of service workers is a really important general effect of platforms. And the result is that a lot of people are going to, well, the short version is I think the 40 hour a week job is going to disappear for many people. What we're probably going to have is a series of gigs. That means that if we make hiring you for a gig more expensive by requiring employee benefits, that is treating you as an employee rather than a contractor, we're going to accelerate dramatically the replacement of these workers with software. So the, it, it seems like it makes sense. Well, I would, and I've had an argument, I've had this argument with a number of my colleagues at Duke who say, well, don't you want these people to be employees and to have benefits? Well, I want all sorts of things that I can't have. Yes, I, that would be great. But the consequence of saying they have to be employees is mean they're going to be unemployees. They won't be able to get jobs as contractors. So I'm I'm thinking that we need to recognize there's there's an accelerating move towards the end of 40-hour a week jobs for many, many people. That means the end of benefits. What you can probably do is find a series of short-term gigs. If you have some kind of saleable skill, you have things that you can make, things that you can do. Or maybe you can make things and have them delivered in your apartment. So a more artisanal, and in some ways, again, this is a this is probably a positive, a more artisanal approach to producing things locally, sharing them locally and having them delivered by an autonomous Uber. So if if we have a reduction in transactions cost that way, a lot of human freedom is Opened up. But the job, whether we like it or not, and I, I always, I often say, and, it, and I think it offends people economic revolutions don't care what we think of them. The fact that I would like people to have jobs and benefits, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that jobs are being destroyed. The only choice that we get is will we allow people the flexibility to design their own communities of meaning and their own gig positions, or are we going to relegate them to unemployment and force them to live on the dole? That's the only two choices.
0: Right. So I think the, the key thing is kind of a – not exactly empirical claim. It's a claim about the world that um, when, when we – can't directly test about the counterfactual. So I think that those who would favor more regulation, their counterfactual is, you know, look at all these people working at gig work. They're not getting as many hours as they might want. They're, you know, taking home less. They're not getting the benefits that they would get relative to the counterfactual of if all those people suddenly could become full-time workers uh, employed at the same job. And you're saying that the actual counterfactual if you put in place those regulations would be that the majority of them would simply be replaced entirely and automated out of the system. So they'd be they'd be fully unemployed. So that seems like something we could actually try to look at, you know, with uh you know, with, with evidence ultimately.
1: Yes. And there it may not be as hopeless as I have said. There are examples in the past the one everybody points to is automatic teller machines. People were worried that with the ad- advent of ATMs, that all the people who had their jobs in banks would be laid off because this software could now, the software in, in a hardware setting, you know, an ATM, I press buttons, I can deposit things, I can get cash, I can make transfers. It turns out that that so reduced the cost of one kind of activity, that a bunch more branch banks were open, and the number of employees of banks actually went up, not down, as a result of having ATMs be available. So maybe it's not as hopeless as I'm making it. I I agree that it's an empirical question in the sense that economists mean it, that we should examine which of the counterfactuals is more plausible. I do, however, see a dramatic increase in the number of of kiosks replacement by software, um, instead of being able to get a phone call to human being, if I have a problem with customer service, I'm told to go to some, uh, online. Please visit us online at somethingsomethingsomething.com. So all of those things were asked or at the grocery store. It's actually fairly difficult to find a cash register that's open. I usually go through the self-serve thing where I scan them myself. So in all these ways, we're seeing the replacement of employees by software. Right. And so you're saying if we at least it doesn't sound like it necessarily solve the problem, but it would
0: at least mitigate the problem by being may, being more flexible about uh, various kinds of contract and gig work so that wherever that would at least slow some of this transition so that people don't get immediately re- replaced by the software or the robot. And I think it will solve I I think, it. I, I, think yeah.
1: it, I think I think it will actually solve it in the next generation. Um, people do not like having to drive down to the McDonald's or to the factory in order to do work. They would be perfectly happy to live maybe someplace a little bit farther out of town that's in a more pleasant setting and be able to work remotely. And so the combination of remote work and gig gig work are just made for each other. And having platforms to mediate that for many people, I think will be important. I, I expect that Twenty or thirty years from now, the idea of a job will seem kind of quaint. We haven't had jobs for very long. When you think about it, it's less than two hundred years that there was a ago that a thing called a job started to come into being. For most of human history, people constructed communities of meaning along other dimensions. Now, you know, if I'm a farmer, that's something that I do. But I, I would also have my church. I would also have my family. Having The internet means that I have access to all sorts of other communities of meaning all over the world that can have pretty narrow focus. So I can be a badass swordsman on some kind of computer game, and I can have level 60 armor, and then I have a bunch of fanboys in South Korea who think I'm awesome. I've never met them, but you know, we're, we're friends. We actually have, we, 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 we talk, we will communicate in this other metaverse world. So I, 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 the, the emphasis on job, the emphasis on the material consequences of working 40 hours a week and getting benefits, I think is going to be mostly gone in 20 years. But I think,
0: yeah, I guess the, the worries, I think that's, that's scary for a lot of people. And I, you know, you and I, uh, you know, are, are older, and uh, and you know, we have the most uh, the most locked in job in the world of being a college professor with tenure. So, you know, it's easy for us to say, "Oh, well, the rest of you are just going to have to accept this this world where you're going to be constantly." You know, well, you're, well you're, you'll find meaning outside your work, and hooray, you won't have to spend 40 hours in a cubicle with the boss hovering over you. Uh, but also, you're going to have this constant insecurity where you don't know if you're going to have health benefits. You don't know if you're going to be working next week, if the economy has a downturn, or your, your business hits, uh, hits a road bump, or people just uh, decide they don't feel like having as much takeout food this week.
1: Um, that, that's, that sounds a little scary. Sure, but wait, two things. First... Economic revolutions don't care what we think of them. So I'm not advocating for this. I'm warning people that it is coming, whether you want it or not. Second, there is something we can do to mitigate this. And I'm a libertarian, but I have actually, I sound like a social democrat. I think we need universal basic income and single payer health care for just the reasons that you said. So we need universal basic income to provide some floor so that the week to week or month to month fluctuation in gigs, I have some reliability. I have some income coming in that I can rely on. And, uh, Single-payer health care means that having a job that's tied to benefits, and no other developed country does that in the first place. I think the U.S. needs to recognize that we need to step up and change our health care system though, so that having access to health care doesn't depend on having a job. So if we had universal basic income and single-payer health care, that that wouldn't solve the problem but the some of the basic sources that people have and i think perfectly understandably about a, a sense of insecurity a, a precarious sense of of existence it wouldn't solve it but it would reduce the extent to which i'm just absorbed with that
0: so i'm curious so you mentioned you know you mentioned you're a libertarian and I, I saw looking at your bio that you ran as a libertarian uh, candidate for for governor i think um, so uh, but that definitely, you know, is not, I think that wouldn't fit with a lot, as you, as you indicate, and with a lot of people's idea of libertarian, libertarian to them is any kind of government is bad, get the government out of everything. So uh, I'm curious, from your own perspective, like, have you always been in favor of uh, things like UBI or um, uh, universal basic, universal basic income or or universal healthcare? Or, or if not, when did, uh, when did you come around to that? And how, uh, how does that fit with other people in kind of the libertarian intellectual community? Do they – are they on board with that? Is that a general shift or is that more your own sense of the kind of set of institutions and policies that would work together?
1: Well, that was a bunch of questions. I'll try yes, to – Yes, <laughs> I'll try. Well, that's fine. I'll try to be brief though. Um, libertarians are concerned with concentrations of power. And there's two kinds of concentrations of power that can be excessive in the modern world, in my view. And one of those is government and the other is corporations. So we're constantly in a balancing act between those two. So the, under some circumstances, I think we, the polity, need to use government to control the excessive power of corporations. So the, the idea of libertarians is just being against government, I think, is wrong. Libertarians are against concentrations of power. Second, I was against universal basic income, or at least I was not for universal basic income. I didn't see an argument for it. Why would you make this payment to everyone? Um, that just doesn't seem like a job, the, gov- the business the government should be in. I was led to it by, I mean, you and I basically in five minutes walked through what it took me 10 years to conclude. it is precisely the argument that this transformation from jobs to a gig economy is coming, whether we like it or not. Now, one possibility is that I can say I'm a tenured professor, screw all you people, or I can think, you know, this is going to be really wrenching for society. Even if you're just like Bismarck in Germany in the 1890s and 1900s, the reason that Germany adopted a welfare state was not concern for the poor; it was a concern for revolution. So, even if you're, the, the wealthy groups are concerned about the, the political stability of the country, you might still say we need a much more well-developed and fairer distribution of income in order to get people to continue to buy into the system. So, the the the, the last question that you asked is. I think, I don't know if it surprises me, but many people are surprised how broadly accepting libertarians are of universal basic income. And the reason is that it's not, I'm going to take money from some people and give it to others. It's universal. So it means that this is something that we're we're saying, we live in a society, all of us get a lot of benefits from participating in it. Let's make sure that everyone across the board, gets a dividend from the fact that other people, or maybe just through luck, you know, entrepreneurs, some entrepreneurship is the result of talent and effort, and some is the result of luck. Let's share some of the benefits from that in a way that encourages, that ensures that everyone has some minimal level of dignity. Now, maybe you, I mean, you can say it's not enough, but I would say universal basic income would be a lot better than what we have now, and single-payer health care would be a lot better than what we have now in the sense that both are universal. No one falls through the cracks. Right. It is, yeah, as
0: you said, we have a very unique and clunky, at best, um, at, uh, and often unjust system now with uh, everyone's, uh, you know, yeah, having, having health care linked to linked to this construct of a job, which, as you said, is historically maybe contingent and might be going away and not, not everyone has one now. So um, yeah, and, and especially, well, especially with the pandemic um, actually, so with, let me use that as a transition. So with the pandemic, obviously the, the realization of how important it is to be able to roll out healthcare to everyone in the population for the interest of, you know, even the, even the one percenters um, or the, you know. College professors who can hide out and just you know write books at home. Um, we still want there to be a society where we can walk outside and not worry about you know everyone who coughs nearby. Um, and uh, so that that's a clear argument for for, for a broad uh, broad availability of health, healthcare one way or another. Um, but what else? Um, you know, the past two years have been uh, two three years have been crazy, right? So you, your book came out in two thousand twenty one. So um, that as these things usually go, that probably meant you finished writing it or, you know, in 2020. So what, how, uh, how have your, how's your thinking evolved um, since this book, you know, in a, given the the pandemic and and everything else that's, that's happened?
1: Well, funny, you should ask. I actually finished the book in February of 2020. And fortunately there were some production delays. And I said, after six months, I said, look, I need to rewrite this. We we live in a different world than I was writing it in fall of 2019. And by the summer of 2020, I'm thinking I need to work on this differently. So what, what had happened by the summer of 2020 was that people were ordering all sorts of things online. People were having food delivered. And the conclusion that I reached was that we're going to see a transformation in Uber that is something like the transformation that we saw in Amazon. Not many people remember, even though it wasn't long ago, but Amazon was a book company. They sold books. Now, for a while, we were upset because Amazon was driving all the mom and pop bookstores out of business. And I, I like small independent bookstores myself. But during the pandemic, those were all closed. And it turned out that Amazon could deliver all sorts of things. And so there was a gigantic increase in the number of employees of Amazon. Now, you can say that there's problems with that. Amazon pays pretty well, but the conditions under which people work maybe aren't that great. It's a problem that it is a giant platform. There's not that much competition, depending on how you define the industry. But it seems to me that there is a form of competition that most people haven't thought about that's coming for Amazon. and that is. Uber. Uber doesn't have to deliver human beings. Uber can deliver all sorts of things that we're going to rent or share. So just like Amazon was a bookstore and then became a platform where you could buy anything, because there's nothing special about books for Amazon's value proposition. What Amazon does is provide space for a description, that is triangulation, they provide delivery and payment services, that is transfer, and they provide reviews and a way to return the thing and get your money back. That's trust. So Amazon is a great platform. Uber could be a platform for the delivery of all sorts of rental and sharing Things. So the example that I usually use is suppose that 20 years from now, I live in a city and I don't have any power tools, but I still do some work around the house. And so one Saturday afternoon, I need a power drill. And I go to Uber, and I click on power drills, and three minutes later, a power drill is delivered to a smart pod in front of my house. I reach out and get the drill. I drill two or three holes in the wall because, after all, I don't want a drill. What I want is holes in the wall right here, right now. The reason I own a power drill today is the easiest way to get three holes in this wall right here, right now is to own a power drill, which is really expensive, but I could rent it, get it in three minutes delivered by a driverless Uber car, put it back in the smart pod, pay a dollar and a half and not have to store it. And then the Uber takes that power drill to the next user. And 15 or 20 people use that power drills in the course of a day. So it pays for itself fairly quickly. It's a commercial quality power drill. That's better than anything else I would ever buy for myself. So I get better quality for a dollar and a half and I don't have to store it. Well, that means that the competition that is coming for Amazon is Uber or something like it. So I think that we're going to see a, a, an increase in competition in this space where you can find things you can pay for them have them delivered and you can trust that you actually can use the thing that you contracted for and the 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 pandemic dramatically increased our the sort of default expectation that that's the way we should approach these problems. It used to be that we would own things. It used to be that we would go to restaurants. Now we're much more used to ordering takeout. We're much more used to thinking about tools that we might borrow instead of buy. So, yes, that
0: gets into another issue. You know, you mentioned you're against concentrations of power. So a lot of people are saying that uh, that maybe we should break up some of the, the large platform businesses, whether it be Facebook or Amazon or, or, uh, or even, I don't know if you are think about Uber, but you know, trying to get, uh, if competition is good, concentration of power is bad, we should break them up. So, so what do you think
1: about that? My next book is about antitrust. My first job was at the Federal Trade Commission, so I actually worked in the antitrust authorities for a bit, but that was a long time ago. And so I, I have a paper on antitrust called Giants Among Us, And here's the problem. Platforms by their nature, in order to reduce cost, have to be large. The reason Facebook is big is I don't want to have to switch between different apps to to look at the cat pictures that you put up or put my own cat pictures up so that you can see them, or maybe videos. So the platforms by their nature want to be large. It's the competition across platforms that will discipline These. So the consumer welfare standard that was established in the late 1970s in antitrust law said that as long as prices to consumers don't go up, then the argument against monopolization is you can't make an antitrust argument against a company, even it is it controls the entire industry as long as prices stay low. And the prices of these companies are all falling. So I I'm going to argue that we need to reconceive the way that we think of power. And I'm actually going full Foucault in this book. The problem is not size in the sense that Amazon is too large for the industry. That's actually a natural consequence of delivering good services at a low price. The problem is Panopticon. The problem is the Foucaultian concern of concentrated power not exactly politically, but socially. So these companies have so much of our data and our data are shared in a way that we're constantly under surveillance. So the, the, the surveillance capitalism metaphor is one that I actually think is correct. I just don't think that antitrust is the correct response. And so We could talk for another hour about what I think the solution is, but let me try to give a one minute version. What I think the the solution to this problem is, is to give individuals ownership of their own data. Nobody gets to use my data without my permission. And the way that we would do this is to encrypt my data behind a pseudonym which means that we would be having to operate in a blockchain kind of world where there's levels of identity. So the, the the Amazon knows a lot about my purchasing habits. Facebook knows a lot about my viewing habits. So we surf the internet, S-E-R-F. We are surfs on the manor houses of these large estates, the, the, the Facebook manor. They own all of our labor. They take all the corn that we produce or the, the Amazon manor where they take all of our data. So if I owned my data, and if the, my identity was pseudonymous, now you can match to a pseudonym, but you don't know who it is. You don't know the features of it. And you could not use my data unless I gave your my permission. But there's a downside to this, too. And uh, it might have been your next question, so let me just anticipate it. Social credit scores are really what I'm talking about. That is, I have an identity that I own and you can only have access to the parts of it that I need. So if I want to buy a car, you don't get all my data. You only get access to the score that says my reputation is for repaying my debts. But there is some place, some nonprofit organization that keeps all of these identity figures in one place. And these would be very valuable to the government. And in China, we're already seeing social credit scores being used to, discipline not just people's economic habits, but their political habits. So political dissent or maybe being the brother or sister of someone who's politically questionable, there's a whole lot of problems that would have to be solved. So I'm sorry, that was more than a minute. But let let me grant the claim that these companies are too powerful. Let me say that I think antitrust is not the answer. We need to think in terms of power. And some sort of blockchain pseudonymous identities that allow us to control our interactions more or less as equals with these large companies is going to be the solution, provided we don't go all the way over into a social credit score that's used as a mechanism of social control.
0: Right. I think actually I'll, I'll just interrupt there because I, um, I I study China. I'm actually doing some work on social credit now. I think um, the the social, even in China, actually, they're much more at this phase of um, most Chinese people actually like the social credit system because it really is about economic trust. And it's about, uh, you know, all the, resolving these kinds of problems, which, you know, in a country with a, a less well-developed legal system and, you know, other problems of corruption, uh, it's great to have some way of figuring out, you know, first of all, getting back at someone who who screws you over, um, you know, violates a contract with you in an agreement and uh, and trying to identify who is. Less likely to do that, um, and so far, I mean, the other thing, you know, the downside and the upside, I guess, is that the, the Chinese government has so much, so many other tools that it can use against uh, citizens who uh, it disagrees with. That I don't think it's actually made a big use of social credit for that purpose, um, because if they if they need to, to uh, oppress you, then it doesn't have to be that that sneaky and indirect. But I think the concerns raised about China are probably even more. You know would be more of an issue here because we have uh, a government that obviously cannot be uh with occasional tragic exceptions quite as as uh you know brutal and ruthless as uh, as china in its worst moments but um is would be much more tempted to make use of things uh to achieve other social goals that uh yeah to use the social credit in kind of the, the wrong way that might um you know warp warp its purpose or, or undermine uh, what we'd uh, the, the good things about it. Um, so that's great that you have, uh, we'll, have we'll definitely have to um, meet up again uh, when you've got the next book out and, uh, and talk uh, more about how your thinking has evolved. Um, but I think the, this is great for today. And uh, thank you very much
1: for, uh, for making the time. It has been a pleasure. It's really been great talking to you, Peter.